All right, let's see. I have nothing to ease you back into this, so we are just going to have to dive right in. Romans is back. Aren't you excited? (laughs) And, well, you're allowed to be excited today. I am not. So... We will. It has been a few weeks. Part of the reason it has been a few weeks is we intentionally added an extra week or an extra Sunday for Thanksgiving because I didn't want to do this and split chapter 9 away from chapters 10 and 11. So before we dive into this, and I explained to you why I'm not going to have any fun this morning, which is going to be the first Sunday in a while. I'm not going to be the one having any fun. I'm sad. Um, I know, isn't it terrible? Um, Let's get you guys back up to speed. So go all the way back to the beginning of the book, because remember, this is a letter. You can't just subdivide it and make sense of it. That's why we go through like we do. So you have to keep in mind the stuff that has come before. So Paul has pointed out the sin problem of humanity and its universal impact. He has highlighted the gracious work of God as the only means of salvation in Christ. Catch that? The only means of salvation in Christ is the gracious work of God. Um, Paul proved this then from the Old Testament. His two big examples were Adam and Abraham. And then he started answering objections. Well, what about the law? What about us? What about suffering? That's kind of the quick recap of chapters 1 through 8. Now, you have to keep that in mind, because if you do not have that all in mind, we will then go off the rails in chapters 9, 10, and 11, okay? So, I warned you several times as we've gone through this, chapter, this book that, remember those times I looked at you and said, please remember this for later. Remember all those times? It's later. <laughs> Today is later. This is all of those things I told you to mark and remember. It's go time, all right? Now, this is again, though, why we go through books. Because if you have some assumptions about what Paul has taught, we're going to throw this all out the window because we're going to actually read it and go through it and make sense of it. This is one of those chapters, I've told you this before, when you outline a book to preach through, there are certain things you're like, ooh, this is going to be fun. And those Sundays usually are fun. There are also some times you go, uh, I'm not looking forward to this. This is one of those Sundays for me. This is also why we go through books the way that we do. You don't get to cherry pick. It's all in there. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And I say that as someone who has preached through the entirety of, uh, the entirety of Genesis before. You want to talk about getting some looks when you handle the relationship between Judah and Tamar on a Sunday morning? That was an interesting day. I had fun. Nobody else had fun that morning, but I had fun with that. So, Or the, the number of people that made jokes when I had to go through chapter 17 of Genesis and the covenant of circumcision with Abraham. Do you know how many people came with me afterwards to make jokes about that? See, not fun. Not fun at all. So you weren't bad people. They were very bad people that day, though. Cameron knows exactly what I'm talking about. So, (sighs) no, it wasn't here. It wasn't here, luckily. Um, That's why I said you weren't the bad people, so you were good. So the other part of this, why this is so important is you can't separate out Romans 9 from Romans 10 and 11. 9 sets the stage for 10, which sets the stage for 11, which makes sense of what we get through when we, go, when we get there, and also makes sense of the last portion of this book, which is all the application. So like if, you're ever, if you've ever done Bible memorization, one of the Bible verses people like to memorize is Romans 12.1, about renewing your minds. What's the first word of Romans 12.1? Therefore. The therefore is Romans 1 through 11. You can't read chapter 12 and be like, I wonder why he's saying that. It's the whole book. So 
we're going to go through this. This is building on Paul's theology of salvation, the grace of God, the work of Christ on an undeserving sinful people. So that's Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5. This is in light of questions about the law in chapter 6 and questions about us that have come through in chapter 7. Because of that, you then have to deal with other objections. And I've told you my theory about this before, that if you read Romans 15, and we will get there and have all sorts of fun with it, when you get to Romans 15, there's this long list of people that, are, that Paul is sending this letter on behalf of. And knowing that Paul doesn't write most of his letters, but that he dictates the vast majority of it, I still contend to this very day that Paul was dictating this letter, and it was supposed to be like four chapters, four or five chapters, like Ephesians and Colossians. But all those other guys in the room are like, hey, what about this? Well, now we have to answer that objection. Hey, what about this? And now we got to answer that objection. And that's why you ended up with 16 chapters in Romans. I'm absolutely convinced of this. It was supposed to be like chapter one and then chapter 12 and then moving on with life. <laughs> I'm still convinced of that to this day. But anyway, so with that said, we're going to go through this, make sense of this, you're allowed to be mad at me at the end of this. You're even allowed to disagree with me a little bit about some of this. Years ago, we actually went through Romans and men's Bible study. Uh, men's Bible study started about six o'clock and we would usually start like by 6.30, 6.45 after we were talking about everybody's week and everything that was going on and we'd be done by 7.30. We started that night on time and Cameron texted me at nine o'clock asking if I was coming home. <laughs> Matt remembers that. He was one of the ones that was there that night. <laughs> that, was, that was an interesting evening. So we're not doing that here on a Sunday morning, but you are allowed to look at, the, look at me after the end of this one and go, well, I'm not sure I would go that far. You're allowed. I'm not going to fight with you, but if you're going to disagree with me, what must you base your disagreement on? Better come back to the Bible. Better explain how I'm wrong and you're right from the Bible. Sound good? Let's dive in before I give you guys all an aneurysm. Verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So, all right, why is Paul suddenly so worried about ethnic Jews, ethnic Israel? Well, again, this is that understanding that has come before. The fulfillment of the law where? The law, weak as it was, Christ did, remember? So the fulfillment of the law in Christ. Your righteousness is not found in your law keeping. Your righteousness is found as you stand in Christ. Well, what does that mean then for the people who are still seeking their righteousness in their keeping of the law? Because that's the vast majority of Israel. And if you don't think that's the vast majority of Israel, I beg of you to read a gospel. <laughs> because this explains some of the interactions. Well, some, this explains almost every interaction between Jesus and the crowds. This understanding of humanity, which coming around already, you know you're in trouble, right? This is what humanity does. Every single man-made religion, every single idolatrous system does this. Why do you offer your idolatrous sacrifice? so that whatever deity we're sacrificing to will do stuff for us. Why do you offer this prayer? So that the God will be pleased so that he will X, Y, Z. At the end of the day, man-made systems and idolatrous religions are about who? Us getting what we want when we want it. We jump through the right hoops and the God does what he does. The Bible is forever pointing you away from yourself, forever pointing you to God, to his glory, to his greatness, to his mercy, to his salvation, not to what you must do, but to what God has, is, and will do. That's the distinction that's very, very important. That's the distinction that Paul was laying down early on in this book. What was the condition of all humanity? Chapters 1, 2, and 3. 
sinners. Now, what's changed that? Chapter 4 and 5, the grace of God accomplishing the work of Christ to bring people into a kingdom, to grant them righteousness that they did not earn, that they did not deserve. That's been the foundation that is the necessity, the necessary foundation that you must have to go through this. Now, beyond just that, there's a second issue. I've told you this going all the way back to chapter 1. You cannot, let's see if you remember, pop quiz, I always love doing this to you guys, sorry. You get one word answer, just one. You cannot make sense of the book of Romans unless you keep the blank of God in mind. Who remembers the word? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? The sovereignty of God. God ruling and reigning over his creation. God is king. He is enthroned in the heavens. There is no other. If you forget that, you will make a hash out of the book of Romans. And while hash may be good on Christmas breakfast, it is not good for a Bible verse, okay? So, go back to the very, very beginning. Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of who? Power of God. He is the one who is ruling and reigning. To which people? The Jew and the Gentile, which, again, that's how many of the people? That's everybody. You're either Jew or Gentile. There's not, a, there's, not a third, there's not a third group here. You're not out. So remember that, verse 4. So brethren, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom, belongs, who, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. We're going to pause right there. See, the work of Christ should have been the birthright of Israel. Why? Because the redemption of God was always the accomplishment of God for his people. So rewind all the way back to the beginning. Adam and Eve are placed in the garden to do what? What's the big command? See, everybody remembers the negative command. What was the positive command? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. With what? To do what? To worship God, to extend the dominion of God from the garden to the ends of the earth. That's why the garden is there to be cared for. The rest of the earth, what must Adam do? He's got to cultivate it. He's going to take what is the garden, the sanctuary of God, and extend that to the very ends of creation, the rule of God from this small little place out to the ends of the earth. That is the salvation for which of the people? All of them. Now, things go a little off course. <laughs> I'll let you read chapters 3 and 4 and 5 of Genesis to see how that works. But then you get Noah. What happens? We're starting over. Why? Because Noah walks with God. We're going to stick him in the ark. We're going to protect him and his family who are the faith, the last of the faithful line of Seth. The rest of, you, the, rest of the earth is going to be undone because of the curse and what sin has wrought on it. How does the ark story end? It's landed upon the mountain. They are there until who tells them to leave? God, until God tells them to leave the ark, they do what? They keep their butts in there and they stay put. Now what? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. With what? The same thing. So go from the sanctuary of the ark and bring God's dominion to the ends of the earth. Oops. Now, fast forward again. Abraham. What's the promise to Abraham? You'll be in blessing to who? The nations. Why is Israel placed where they're placed? It's the crossroads of the known world. You connect Europe, you connect Asia, you connect Africa, and they all travel through who? That little section on the Mediterranean. They were supposed to be a light unto who? 
the nations. That's why when you get to the Exodus, they leave Egypt as what kind of people? A mixed multitude. You don't just have an ethnic Israel, you have a spiritual Israel. If you're, that's why God tells them what? If the sojourner and the alien among you wants to celebrate the Passover, he can't do it. The Passover is for Israel. But <laughs> if the sojourner alien among you wishes to partake of the Passover, this is what he must do. In other words, he must become what? He must become Israel. Well, does that mean you have to be born in or can you join another way? You can join in by faith and following through with the covenant. You become partakers of the covenant. This was always the work that the dominion of God would extend to which people? All of them. This was the promise. This was the hope. So Paul has mentioned this before in Romans 3. What advantage has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? That's the mark of the covenant from Genesis 17. Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What's the point of entrusting you with the oracles of God? That you would do what with them? Teach them when you get up. This is the Shema, right? Teach them when you get up, when you lay down, write them on your doorpost, bind them on your forehead, bind them on your wrist, put them on the city gates. So you have the oracles of God, so you will take them unto the ends of the earth. So that, again, what will happen? God's dominion from Israel will extend where? Everywhere. What went wrong? Deuteronomy 28. It shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commands and his statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. I'm going to leave it at that. You guys can go read Genesis or Genesis, Deuteronomy 28. That's verse 15. The curses then extend through verse like 65. <laughs> There's a couple. What happened to Israel? The same thing that happened to Adam. Same thing that happened to Noah. Same thing that happened to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David, to Solomon. Same thing that's happened to everybody is we started caring about and paying attention to what? Our sinful flesh. Who we are, what we want, which is part of the lesson of all of these failures is who's going to accomplish these things? God is. Adam can't be the one to extend the dominion of God. Noah can't do it. Abraham can't do it. The nation of Israel can't do it. We need God to do it. We need a king to reign eternally, 2 Samuel 7. We need a prophet who rightly sees and explains God, Deuteronomy 18. We need someone who's actually capable of standing up against sin. This was our, this was our Christmas Eve day service, our last Sunday morning, right? Christ standing firm in the face of temptation, overcoming sin where sinful humanity has fallen and been weak and entered into sin and iniquity. We need a God to then crush the serpent, get rid of his offspring, and bring in righteousness. And we can't, but God can. So once again, you need the accomplishment of God. Verse 5 keeps going. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. See, as you stand in the bloodline of Christ, as the Israelites of Paul's day, this should be the inheritance. This should be the accomplishment. Um, Isaiah 5, let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vines, and he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. 
What's Isaiah talking about with the nation? By the way, that's part of the reason why he's walking around naked for three years as a sign of judgment. What has God done for Israel? Taken them out of Egypt as Hosea has taught. Put them into a good land. Protected them, secured them, given them provision, given them the temple, dwelt in their midst, given them the sacrifices that point to Christ, given them the law that points to Christ, given them the king that's supposed to point to Christ. I say supposed to because that list of kings is iffy at best most of the time. So this is the nation a good vineyard on a good hill with good soil and a good vine dresser. And yet, what is humanity produced? Yeah, not that. This is the warning. This is the problem. This is what Paul has laid out. This is what should have been. Unfortunately, the ones who knew the most rejected the most. We know that. Scripture knows that. Paul knows that. Therefore, we have to explain that. Verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Of course not. We know this. Things like Isaiah 55. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter in which I sent it. So we know the word of God hasn't failed. Why not? For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now, if you're reading this chapter for the first time, that's an odd statement. If you have been paying attention up until that, up until now, though, it is not. Paul has covered this, so rewind to Romans 2. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And by the way, that's not a new idea when you get to the book of Romans. So rewind to a book that Paul wrote previously, Galatians chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now, why can Paul say this? What is Israel supposed to be? Is Israel supposed to be a pure ethnic race that keeps all of those evil, wicked, dirty, no good Gentiles out and brings this pure bloodline down through the ages? And that is our, that is our praise and worship to God. Look how pure and righteous we are. Feels like I'm describing the Aryan nation more than a Bible book, doesn't it? Now, what are they supposed to be? If you had to define what is Israel, what, was the, what definition would you give them? I'll give you a second to think because then I'll give you a good one. People of God. The people of God. Now, the people of God have always been what kind of people? A joinable people. That's why you have the covenant given to Abraham. So that who is given this covenant? Abraham and all of his household. If the sojourner or alien among you wishes to partake, he must do what? Enter into the covenant, become part of Israel. Because what is being pictured? It is being pictured the people of God extending the dominion of God to the ends of the earth. That is what Adam was supposed to do. That is what Noah was supposed to do. That is what Abraham was supposed to do. That is what his people are supposed to do. That's what the nation was supposed to do. That's what was supposed to be going on. That is what Christ does. That's why as Christ is faithful, standing up to sin, overcoming being faithful to what God has laid down, being faithful to the plan of God and the promises of God, what's the reward at the end of the book? That people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered where? Around the throne, praising God and the lamb who was slain. This is the hope. This is the accomplishment. Now then, I tell you all of that because that helps make sense of what Paul is doing from this point forward. You are Israel in that you are the people of God. That doesn't mean that the people who were Israel are no longer Israel in that sense. 
but this is the picture you get. So remember when we went through Exodus, I know some of you were here through for that whole thing. We talked about this. The people come out of Egypt. They're all just wonderful and grateful and thankful and keepers of the covenant and so blessed by the law, right? No, what happens? Even amongst that redeemed nation of Israel, you have what? You have unbelieving, sinful people. And God does what to them? Judges. Cast them out. This is what happened. God comes up. God. Moses comes down the mountain, right? God, with the tablets, does what? Chucks them at Aaron because he's mad at him. I'm, I'm dying on this hill. I still to this day think that, like, if you ever see it where Moses gets mad and throws the tablets down, no, no. I've never had siblings, but I just know if you come down the mountain and your brother is leading the people astray, what was your first thought? Who were you hitting with that tablet first? Be honest. Those of you with siblings are sitting there grinning at me like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know he chucked one at Aaron and then probably one at one of his nephews or something like that. So what happens next? The people are engaged in sin and iniquity. All those who are for the Lord gather to Moses. What do the Levites do? They gather to Moses and then do what? Take your sword and go throughout the camp and execute what? God's judgment. When Achan sins, what happens? The ground swallows them whole. When the Israelites sin in the book of Joshua, what happens? Plague breaks out. When they sin in the wilderness, God sends the serpents. You have judgment. You have the unbelieving group being weeded out constantly. When they sin against God and fail to take the land, there is punishment. There is judgment. But in the midst of that, there is also redemption. The Levites go throughout the camp, but what ends up happening? They are stopped. When plague breaks out, Moses intercedes and stands between God and the people and prays for them. And God does what? He relents. When the serpents come out amongst them, Moses fashions the bronze serpent, and all who look upon the serpent are healed. In other words, as you look upon the standard, you are saved. This is why Jesus uses that as an example of himself. As Moses raised up the bronze serpent, so must the Son of Man be raised up, that all who believe on him will have eternal life. So, you have the people of God named Israel, even then are a mixed multitude ethnically and spiritually. So what is Paul building on now? You are Israel as you stand in Christ. Because as you stand in Christ, you are the people of God. You are the ones extending the dominion and the rule of God to the ends of the earth. You do it how? In your family, in your community, in your neighborhood, where you have influence, where you have your dominion, you extend it. Knowing what? That there is coming a day that you can't conquer the ends of the earth. Revelation 19, Jesus comes down, sash, sword, flaming fire, horse, the whole bit. What happens? Suddenly, God's dominion goes where? Ends of the earth. So what you cannot accomplish, you have faith and trust that God will accomplish. That is necessary to keep moving forward because that is the foundation you have to have to understand this. So they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Here's the proof. Who made that decision? God did. So go back to Genesis 21. God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad. So that's Ishmael, son of Hagar. Whatever Sarah tells you to do, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants will be named. Genesis 25. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore to him Zimram and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. So do they get to look at this and go, we are the descendants of Abraham. We are the people of God. That's a lot of peoples. You'll see Midianites later. Do you know where you see Midianites later in the book of Genesis, by the way? Fun little Bible trivia for you. They sell Joseph to them. <laughs> it's Midianite traders that they sell Joseph to. Basically cousins. Be like, hey, family reunion. Here, take this one. We don't like him. 
I mean, they don't get to then look and go, we're the inheritors of the promise. We're the people of God. Well, what makes you so special? We're Abraham's offspring. What was John the Baptist warning to the, to the offspring of Abraham? Don't say you're there because you're the children of Abraham. From stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. No, what matters is not the people of the flesh. What matters is the people of the heart, the people of the spirit, the people of the soul. So, verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So we look for those who are of faith and not of law. Because let's be honest. If through Isaac your descendants shall be named then who should his descendants have been named through according to the law? Anybody paying attention yet? Would it have been Jacob? Why not? It would have been who? Esau. But it's not according to the law. It's according to the work of God. It's according to the promise. It's according to the work of faith. This is not new for Paul in Romans either. Romans chapter 4. For this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, that is the physical descendants, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. So Paul's building on this idea that you are a child of Abraham as you are his child in the faith. Galatians 4. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, the son by the free woman through the promise. Which one is God working through? In other words, not the accomplishment of humanity, but the accomplishment of who? God. Why do we have a son by Hagar? Because Sarah was old and Abraham was old and we weren't having any kids and it doesn't look like anything that we can accomplish. So we people need to do this a different way. Gee, what could possibly go wrong with that plan? <laughs> How many times I read it to you? There's a way that seems right to a man and in the end his way leads to death. So we don't follow the flesh. We follow the promise. We don't follow the law. We follow the faith. We trust in the working of God. We trust in the accomplishment of God. And as we live that life of trust, we live a life guided by the Spirit, knowing that we are inheritors of the promise, hope, hoping for a kingdom that is to come, verse 10. And not only this, Paul's going to continue proving it to you, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here's where people start getting twisted. And here's where you're allowed to get mad at me, okay? You're allowed to get mad at me, but if you want to disagree with me, you know what you got to do. You got to go back to your Bible verse and explain this. Law of inheritance would have told you that Esau's next in line. That's not how that went down. Jacob is next in line, which again, you want a fascinating study. Go look through your Old Testament and find me all those firstborn inheritors of the promise. Just, just for fun. Because I always, I always do this quick and easy, like um, Adam and Eve, firstborn son is? Cain. Oops. <laughs> that didn't go real well, did it? No, instead the promise is traced through Seth. And then you fast forward, like, oh, they, they were singing this morning. I love when that works out. Firstborn son of Jesse. Does anybody even know his name? Because <laughs> it wasn't David, was it? David's firstborn. What was his name? <laughs> it wasn't Solomon, was it? Um, 
Go back to the good priests, um, Hannah and Elkanah. Elkanah's firstborn son, was that Samuel? No, because he had sons and daughters by Penaniah. Not Samuel, not the tracing of the line. You have a lot of God picking and choosing. Um, Judah. We trace the family line of Judah through Perez. Is Perez Judah's firstborn? No, because what happened to his firstborn? He was wicked and God killed him. What happened to his second son? He too was wicked and God killed him too. And then the third son was like, mm. <laughs> we're not going down this road again. Again, there's the whole story with Tamar. Go, go read Genesis, what is it, 30, 37? Have fun with 34 and 37. You'll, you'll be blessed. It's not Christmas anymore, so you can read the weird stuff, right? You have God purposely circumventing what would be the plan of man and the laws of men to accomplish what? the plan of God, by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, so that God will stand and man will not. Now, this is where you have to remember some things. Who redeems? God does. Easy, right? Simple. How? (laughs) By grace, through faith. Now, Paul would tell you in Ephesians 2 that you are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Um, Grammatically speaking, you know what the gift of God in that sentence is, right? It is your faith. God takes all the credit, not some of the credit, all of the credit. This is the lesson you get from your Old Testament. Should have been Adam, right? You got this. You had. It's the ultimate you had one job, bro. And how did that go? If you're Noah, again, what do you have to do? You have to communicate the commands of God to the next generations. How far do you have to go before the entirety of the, na- of the, entirety of the world is completely off the rails? We did this with, um, with the uh, genealogies in, um, in Genesis 10. None of Noah's kids are good. This is one of the great um, forgotten things that we covered in Bible study on Genesis 12, or not Genesis, Genesis 11. Y- you know Abraham and his family are idolaters, right? And I didn't come up with that. Joshua 24 comes up with that. Joshua tells you that our father Abraham served other gods beyond the river. There's actual history in some of the apocryphal rabbinical teachings that tell you that Abraham was actually an idol maker. So when God's plucking people out to start a nation, there aren't any. It's not that there's a few good ones like, oh, we have Noah from this righteous family line calling upon the name of the Lord, walking with God. We're not even doing that anymore. By the time you get to Abram and that family, we got nobody. Nobody. And then you see Isaac repeating the same sin of his father, and you're going, eh, we're not off to a good start. And then don't get me started on Jacob, whose name literally means deceiver. Like, he comes by it honestly. So you have God demonstrating what? Not their work. His work. Not their righteousness. His righteousness. None of their accomplishment to stand. His accomplishment to stand based on who? Based on who? Based on God. Nothing that Jacob had done, nothing that he had earned, nothing that he had accomplished, nothing but what God is promising and God is accomplishing. So verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. And all God's people said, duh, God is the just judge of all the earth. Jeremiah 9, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Now, Paul is bringing this up because it's very, very important. You're looking at this from the outside in and going, you had Esau, you had Jacob. 
All right, you chose to make Jacob the bearer of the promises. Why? What are we flipping a coin? Did we draw straws? What's, what's going on here? See, you're operating from a human perspective, so you're assuming what about people? Be honest. Your first thought is that if God redeemed me, and I'm looking at their sin, at the end of the day, let's be honest, if he can overcome my sin, what can he do over there? He can overcome their sin. What ends up happening when you continue to look at the world from that perspective is that you sit there and go, well, he's overcome my sin. Why don't you just go and overcome their sin? Wrong perspective on life. And that's not just me saying that. That's Paul saying that. And we're going to build on that as we go because that's how Paul's going to answer this question. So verse uh, 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is a quote from um, Exodus 33. Um, Exodus 33 is what's before, before what we read this morning. That's why I read what I read this morning. It's before, Mo, before um, God walks before Moses and declares himself. That section in Exodus 34 that we read is important because that is God showing his glory to Moses. It's not just that he sees the shining bright white light, but declaring the glory of God is to declare who he is. So God declares what? That he is gracious and merciful in demonstrating of loving kindness, but will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, the other side of the coin. Mention this one, mention, talk about Isaiah walking naked. You read those judgment passages. Look for the grace. You read those grace passages, start looking for judgment. They go together because you are being saved in the midst of God accomplishing his work. You are being saved by grace in the midst of judgment. So again, you see what? God's mercy, God's compassion, God's accomplishment. So it continues with more proof. So then, verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed through the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Why was there a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph? Like, why is that dude even there? Was God incapable of making sure that people remembered Joseph and remembered the relationship of Israel and Egypt? Was God capable of doing that? Yes. So why is there a Pharaoh who knows not Joseph? Exodus 3, we talked about this when we went through it. Before, before the staff turns into a snake, before the hand becomes leprous, before the water to blood, before the frogs, before the sky goes dark, before any of that, Exodus 3. I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. See, Moses might have been annoyed. You might have been surprised when he goes back in there for, I don't even remember what plague it is. But he's like, you know, there's going to be frogs tomorrow unless you let the people go. And you're sitting there going, surely this time Pharaoh's going to let him go. Oh, here come the frogs. There's going to be hail. All the cattle will die. Surely this time. You know who wasn't shocked by any of that? God. God was not shocked. He flat out told Moses what was going to happen before it happened. Now again, this becomes an issue because you're looking at this. and As a sinful human being, what's your first thought? Be honest. It's not fair, is it? That's your first thought. That's the crowd's first thought sitting around with Paul at the campfire here as he's writing this letter. Paul understands that that's the first thought. So Paul's going to keep going, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? It's a good question, isn't it? Who resists the will of God? 
No, this, this is Nebuchadnezzar's example from Daniel 4, isn't it? That Nebuchadnezzar looks out from his terrace upon all that he has accomplished, all that he has conquered. It's the largest empire in human history up until that point. And, and, you know, until the, what is it, the, uh, the Assyrians come through, and then until the Greeks come through, and then until the Romans come through. <laughs> Just what we do in humanity. Ooh, let's reach a little bit farther, we'll claw a little bit farther. But he looks out and he's like, ah, look at all that I have accomplished. Surely I am the great one. And uh, never mind, there's some madness for seven years. What's the lesson that he learned? His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will on the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, who runs this place? God does. And you don't get to ask these questions. But what do we do? Verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter, does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Which, by the way, let's put that in a parlance that makes sense because that would have made a lot more sense to Paul's hearers. In other words, the potter is making stuff on his wheel. He's allowed to make a beautiful vase, isn't he? You're going to put flowers in it, you give it to your grandma on her birthday. But guess what else he's got to make? He's got to make a chamber pot. I mean, you need that, right? That's a necessity. So what made this lump of clay a vase that's beautiful and ornate, and we're going to save that forever, and what made this one the one we dumped the stuff out the window with? The potter did. Based on what? What was he making that day? Does the, does the vase get to look up and go, you know, I really wanted to be a chamber pot. This is just not fair. See, you thought I was going to do it the other way, didn't you? <laughs> See, got to make sure you're paying attention, keep you awake there. That would be weird. One, pottery shouldn't talk. Two, what's the answer from the potter? Shut up and get in the oven. Kind of like that pop. Did you guys watch that? Uh, Cameron and I were astounded by this. If you haven't seen this on social media, the most horrifying thing. It's, I'm a college football fan, um, so it's been bowl week this past week. They had a Pop-Tarts bowl. So Pop-Tarts sponsored the bowl game. They had an anthropomorphic Pop-Tart that sang and danced its way into a large inflatable toaster. So that they could toast it. So they, could then, they then spit out a Pop-Tart for the players to eat. It's the most horrifying thing on the planet. It's like, so this Pop-Tart is like longing for its death so that the players would eat him. If you haven't seen this on social media, you need to go look this up. It's hysterical. He's singing and dancing as he descends into the toaster. And then like out pops this weird looking Pop-Tart for the players to eat. With the eyes. With the, with the eyes. For, it, it just, yeah. That's what you tell to the, pot, to the clay lump that starts fussing at you. Be quiet, get in the oven, we have work to do here. In this analogy, who's the potter and who's the lump of clay that's got to get in the oven? See, we don't like to think like this, but it's my analogy that I've used before. It's not mine, I've stolen it, but it doesn't matter. I've used it so many times, it's mine now. Um, the, uh, the bug in the jar will never understand the boy who put him there, right? Well, in that analogy, who's the bug in the jar? We are, unless the boy can explain to the bug who he is, unless God explains who, we, who, he, who he is and who we are, we have no earthly idea. Paul's building on that. And by the way, what's the honest answer to this? Will we really look at God and lodge our complaints and say, how dare you do this to us? Yes, yes, we will. We'll do it every five minutes we get a chance. If you don't believe me, go read the book of Job. We did this. We went through Job. Job, righteous man in all the earth, and then all the... 
I can't believe God has done this to me. And all of his friends are like, well, you must have been really, really bad for God to do this to you. Now, remember, what's the answer from Job when God actually shows up? I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak and I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. That's what happened when God actually showed up and started asking questions. And Job realized that the bug in the jar could get smushed. And this is not a place he wanted to be. Paul builds on that. Because to answer this question, you have to change the perspective. Verse 22. What if God... Although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Is that really an answer to the question? Is that really an answer to who resists his will and does, why do we still find fault? No, Paul's basically telling you what? You have to understand humanity rightly, not from your perspective, but from God's. What is humanity? Fallen and sinful. Why are any saved? The mercy of God and the grace of God poured out in the work of Christ, sealed by the Spirit, protected by God, because this is what has been ordered from the beginning. Ephesians 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. See, this is why I am forever asking you, begging you, pleading you, yelling at you, whatever answer you want to give, to change the way you look at the world and not look at it through the lens of you, but to look at it through the lens of who God is and what he has done. Because... And stop me if you've heard this before. Humanity, when it looks at the world through its own sinful, selfish lens, will justify and make account for and excuse for all manner of wickedness and iniquity. And if you don't believe me, watch the news. Don't watch the news. It'll just depress you. (laughs) No, because we do what? We see our sin, and what do we want no one to do about it? What don't we want? So go back to Romans 1. This is the problem from Romans 1, isn't it? Is that... People are sinful, and what do they know about that? They know that they're sinful because they know that there is a God who is righteous, and he will judge sin. And so when you point out that sin, where's the problem? You pointed it out. Stop doing that. If you would just be quiet and ignore this sin, then no one would point it out, and we'd all be fine. Well, that's the baseline of all of sinful humanity. I mean, ask yourself, has anyone ever confronted you about your sin? And when that conversation has happened, you stood there like you were in a British drama, and be like, thank you for pointing out my wicked iniquities. I shall repent before the Father and pray for you as well because you have loved me so. Is that how that conversation goes down? No, someone points out your sin and you go, oh yeah, oh yeah, well, you know what? You, you, and then so on and so forth. And some of you are now looking at the ground. Don't look at your spouse. Don't do it, don't do it. They're gonna give you that look. You know they are. Because that's how that conversation always goes. Always. That's why Jesus tells you, when you point out the speck that's in your brother's eye, first do what? Take out the log that's in your own, and then help your brother deal with it. Because you know what? You go, hey, you got a, you got a, you got a little thing right here. And they go, yeah, look at you're holding, a, you're hauling a whole Home Depot around in your face. Okay, my bad. Let's destroy Home Depot. Okay, now that we've done with that, can, can we get back to what we were working on? Can we, can we, 
We don't leave it alone. We don't ignore it. But this is sinful humanity. Now, remove the work of the Holy Spirit. Remove the transformed heart. Remove the renewed mind. And take that attitude and look at the rest of the world. What will you justify? What will you make excuse for? What will you encourage? What will you then demand from the world around you? See, this is, you haven't seen this in the last 25 years, have you? Love is love. We just want to get married. Say my pronouns, bigot. That's, that would never happen in a million years. We would never go from, we just want to have tax breaks to get out of my bathroom. That, that would never happen. Never in a million years, would it? Because the slippery slope is undefeated. Because this is the human nature at work. This is what has to be remembered. Now, what's the cure for that redeemed Christian? Flip the script. Don't look at the world from sinful humanity's perspective. Don't look at the world from self-justification. Don't look at the world trying to excuse your sin as you pet it in the corner and let it sit there and fester. You do what to the sin in the corner? Let me hear it. Come on. Kill it with fire. Come on. Ah! You buy one of those Elon Musk flamethrower things and you torch the puppy and now we're done. That's what you're supposed to do with your sin. Why do you do that with your sin? Because you love the God who has saved you and because the Holy Spirit is sitting in the other corner looking at you going, you going to do something about that? I've told you what's going to happen if you don't do something about that. This is my, I've I've told you this joke before, the, the footprints in the sand. There are times when the Holy Spirit drags you kicking and screaming. No, no, we're killing that one. I don't want to. You're killing it today. The goal of Christian sanctification is that you're not arguing with the Spirit, but that you are being redeemed more and more day by day so that you are recognizing your sin and you are not warring against the Spirit, but you are warring against the sin so that your life goes well for you, so that your life is easier because you are actually celebrating and being redeemed day by day. We forget what sin actually is. I'll I'll spare you reading 2 Peter 2 because it's a list, but um, we forget how filthy it is because we want to excuse it. Don't. Be transformed. Be renewed. Know who you are and know why you are. Because when you remember the why, you'll remember what Christ has done, what God has commanded from the beginning, what the Holy Spirit is doing day by day, and you will look at that sin and see it rightly. So verse 25. As he also says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people my people, and her who was not my beloved beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Paul's building up on this idea, which, by the way, this isn't unique to Paul. My favorite verse for this is 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's put, let's put this all together and, and make Peter's point for us. You were once sinful Gentiles. You are now redeemed Israel. To do what? To extend the dominion of God into the ends of the earth. How do you do that? By teaching your children, raising your families, discipling your neighbors, encouraging people at church, doing all the things where you have example. See, for Paul here, the problem is not that God redeemed Jacob. The problem is not that God did not redeem Isaac. The problem is, and should be seen rightly, that he actually redeemed Jacob. I mean, be honest. How many times you reach into your Old Testament or wanted to reach into your Old Testament and be like, what is wrong with you people? How many times you just want to grab Abraham and go, stop saying she's your sister. Don't sleep with the woman. Like, you know he's going to do it. 
You know Sarah's going to go, why don't you go lie with my maid Hagar and we will have children. And you're sitting there saying what? You are those annoying people at the horror movie. Go, no, don't open the door. Don't go in there. He's got to kill you. Don't do it. And what does Abraham do every single time you read the chapter? Yeah, does the same thing. You didn't want to strangle Samson once, did you? You didn't want to yell at Jacob. You didn't want to reach in and shake Solomon. You didn't want to do those any. You didn't want to, do, you didn't want to look at the disciples, you know, when they're freaking out in the boat at the storm. You'd be like, would you just shut up and trust Jesus? You didn't want to yell at the Israelites. Did you not see the Red Sea? Did you not see? Mm. You never wanted that, did you? Never wanted any little bit of that. See, the problem isn't that God judges sin. When understanding humanity from God's perspective, the problem should be, how did you save anybody? Like, I've looked in the mirror. I know me. You know what I would not have done? If you gave me that power for like five minutes, you know who would not have made it? (laughs) I've seen my heart. I've seen my mind. I would not have made it if I was in charge of the cut. And you know what? None of you would have either. And if you're being honest with yourselves, you'd have done the exact same thing. Romans 5, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly. Not the ones who are striving, not the ones who are almost there, for the ungodly. See, the right perspective is going, the right perspective is not looking at the world and going, I can't believe that God has not saved everyone. The right perspective is, I can't believe he's actually saved any of you people. (laughs) I can't believe I'm part of you people. (laughs) This is awesome. That's why it's a joy of a child, right? You should be a kid at Christmas when you think about the work that God has done. Like, this is so cool. I can't believe it. Why? Because you understand who you are in light of who God is and recognize what he has done in spite of those things. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will, ex- will execute his word on the earth thorough and quickly. I'm sorry, thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Just because the NASB doesn't do us any favors, Lord of hosts, that's all Sabaoth means. If you ever sing a mighty fortress, it's in there. But it's, it's Lord of hosts. It's no big deal. See, when you look at, sal- when you look at the salvation and the work of God, this should be the reminder that he's redeemed me from that. What does judgment look like? It looks like the flood. It looks like the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. It looks like Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt. It looks like the burning at Gehenna. It looks like the worst of the worst and the things you cannot imagine. It looks like the Israelites going into Jericho and killing what? Everything everything. That's what the judgment of God looks like. What's the grace of God look like? It looks like Rahab's apartment built onto the city wall. What happened to the city walls of Jericho again? And the walls came tumbling down. Do you ever wonder how the walls fell and Jericho's family who's hiding in the apartment that's built on the city wall doesn't die? Because in the midst of that judgment, there is mercy and there is grace and there is redemption. And that should cause God's people to rejoice. Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. For sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the rejoicing. That's the joy. That's the hope. Verse 30. What then shall we say? I'm sorry, what shall we say then, if I could read? That that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? 
because they did not pursue it by faith, that is, as, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. See, Israel created a man-made system, and the man-made system wants to give who credit? Me! doesn't want to trust in God. It doesn't want to build on faith because that's scary. Be honest. You've never once looked at the faith that you've had and gone, you know, this seems a little too easy. <laughs> Surely this should have been more complicated. And then you understood sanctification. You're like, oh, <laughs> it was more complicated. Um, that should be a reminder though. The consistent gospel of scripture is that. It's consistent. So go back through the ages. Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit. What did I just say? <laughs> Instead, saved by grace through faith. Noah, extend the dominion. Why are you drinking? Put the glass down. Ham, what are you doing? Oh my goodness, you people have lost your minds. Saved by grace through faith. Abraham, stop lying to Egypt. <laughs> stop lying to whoever else you're lying to. Stop sleeping with Hagar. Stop it. Saved by grace through faith. Isaac, stop repeating the sins of your father. Stop favoring Esau. Saved by grace through faith. Jacob, stop lying to your father. Stop lying to your uncle. Stop trying to cheat everybody out of everything. Saved by grace through faith. Moses, stop smacking the rock you were told to speak to. Stop dishonoring God. Stop being angry to people. Saved by grace through faith. If you want to have some fun, go read through the list in Hebrews 11. Those are the heroes of faith. You want to strangle most of them. You do. I'm serious. Samson and Barak make the list. Seriously? Seriously. Saved by grace through faith. Those who believe in him will not be disappointed in spite of themselves, in spite of their sin, in spite of their weaknesses. We do not stand because we have overcome. We stand because Christ has overcome. He is the rock. He is the hope. He is the accomplishment. He is the salvation. That's why Paul, you give him the choice, Philippians 3, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. How? For the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's the hope, recognizing that God is God, I am not. He has redeemed a people. Thanks be to God that I am part of it. Now what? Extend his dominion to the ends of the earth. Proclaim Christ and him crucified to the nations. Trust that as God works, he is redeeming his people, adding to them as he has ordered, as he has promised. And what do we do in the meantime? Rejoice in the salvation that he has given. Work until that final day and trust God the God who is and was and is to come to be the one who fulfills all things. Let's pray.